I mean, I think it's a switch in perspective of seeing wine not as just a product, but like as a living thing that has this powerful ability to show transparency back to a plot of land. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. I'm so excited to have had the conversation that I had that I'm going to share with you now with Gina and Mikey Juni. They are the owners and winemakers of two wineries that uh, are really side by side in the same location, the Scar of the Sea and Lady of the Sunshine wineries. And we cover a lot of territory in this interview from the importance of organic and biodynamic certification, wine packaging and ingredients lists, how to handle problem wines as natural winemakers with limited tools, the challenges of farming a small vineyard, Central Coast homestead ciders and co-ferments of Mondews and Gruner Veltliner with lime leaves made under the Scar of the Sea label, why Lees is your friend, in natural winemaking, and why new oak can sometimes be necessary in natural winemaking, why Edna Valley is a great place for romance if you're a winemaker, why farming your own grapes changes the way you think about winemaking, and what a healthy vineyard should look like, among many other things. So strap in, stay tuned, be prepared to meet two of the loveliest young winemaking couple people in the Central Coast. Enjoy! Mikey, Gina, welcome. Thanks for joining the podcast. It's nice to talk to you guys. Thank you for having us. Hey, Adam. Stoked to be here. Thank you. Pleasure. My pleasure. Truly. I, it's funny you say stoked because one of the things I was going to say was I think the first time, Mikey, you and I talked, I, I just called the number on your website randomly and I caught you driving back from surfing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, is that a daily thing for you? Uh, it's not daily. Um, okay. It is part of my mental health. I surf this morning and I I try to make the time to to surf as often as I can or at least just that's like just to be do something outside. So whether it's like a bike ride or surfing or fishing. Um, yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah. Do you have anything like that, Gina? Oh, surfing is not my cup of tea, but I love <laughs> I love watching Mikey surf from the beach. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I really no. Enjoy. I just mean, do you have a anything yeah, anything yoga. like that? Oh yeah, no, uh, yoga has definitely been a huge tool for for my body recovering from you know the labor in the vineyard <laughs> and yeah. uh, mental health as well. Yeah, yoga is definitely what suits me. <laughs> Gina likes right. to be like. I feel like she's like an arts and craftsy person too. She like presses flowers and like gardening. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cooking. Oh, that's really cool. Do you guys do any of that stuff for like your wine club? Do you do you use any of those crafty things in the? I would um, love to. Um, not, it's in development. Yeah, no. Okay. I, I work <laughs> with our friends at Stepladder Ranch um, up in Cambria. They make delicious cheeses um, from goats Ooh. that they have up there, and I include some. I always include some cheese in like my wine club. Um, oh, nice! It's like a fun. I think cheese and wine is like great pairing especially like hard salty cheeses and then also just being able to pump up a friend and other small business is like and stock our fridge as well yeah exactly yeah. 
<laughs> I love that. Well, where are you guys right now? Where are you located? Well, we live in Pismo Beach, and we're in our living room right now. So we live Pismo. Yeah, in this um little old 1960s kind of beach house up in the hills above Pismo, and that's about oh. 10 minutes from the Vineyard Gina Farms in the Edna Valley, and it's about 10 to 15 minutes from our winery, which is in like a warehouse building in San Luis Obispo. In San San Luis Obispo, oh, like the the town or the county area, the town of Slow. Yeah, we have like really a, a industrial, if you will, winery in Slow. Um, it's on a road called Tank Farm Road, and okay. it, it's it used to be a it used to be a diesel auto body, so it, it was called Diesel Row before it was Scar of the Sea and Lady of the Sunshine. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, I mean that it's a beautiful town. Like I. I don't know how many people know how like what a cool little town slow is, but um, I love it. I it, that's very cool. Does that bring tourism? Do you do tastings at the winery? Um, that we don't really do real tastings at the winery, like not open necessarily to the public. Gotcha. Okay. We do I, tastings by appointment through emails, like someone that wants to taste our wines and pr- like puts the effort into getting a hold of us. We definitely will will make time for them. But we don't have a team or a setup for it, so it's um it's rather time consuming to host tastings, as I'm sure you know. It is, yeah. So you guys are mostly distributed then, uh, not doing direct we, sales. We sell direct through our website, um, okay, and and then we have a wine club option sign up through our website, um, and then we sell we actually sell pretty good direct sales through Instagram and and just kind of our websites, but then no, like we don't, it's not like a tasting room direct model. Oh, okay. That's very, that's very interesting. Um, and that kind of happened wish- by accident through COVID. Um, you know, we, we never really used to sell much wine on our website, but, but we actually built out the front room of our winery building to be a tasting room. So it's, it's there in existence, but we don't actually operate it at this point especially because of the turbulence of the last year and the uncertainty of being able to know when we could open or not. Um, but I think it's given us a lot of time to reflect and, you know, put value in our time and we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin. Um, so until we can hire someone to help us and find that right person. Um, yeah. We sell to our distributors yeah. basically. Um, and then through our website. And it, it just okay. makes it so we can keep our team tight and kind of have our weekends and kind of, again, like our, our own time, our own mental health, because we work, we do work a lot. So it's easy to work every day. Yeah. And so, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, have to, we have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> no, I, and I'm like trying to decide which is harder, like having a small micro production winery like we have, and then working other jobs which is sort of like having two full-time jobs <laughs> or it, yeah. should we just like go straight into like a much how, what is your production so i we should say uh or i should say i should have <laughs> done better you're you have two wineries uh one is scar of the sea the other is lady of the sunshine mikey's and gina's respectively um Correct. so uh, yes okay i just want to lay that out there so we're just jumping into all these sort of random things, but I we'll, we'll get back to some of these details. But I, some of the stuff is interesting to me. I think we'll start at the end and then work our way backwards. I guess <laughs> um, you, yeah. What's your production? We 
you know, uh, Scar the Sea is about 3,500 cases, somewhere between 35 and 4,000, depending on the vintage and like what, what we get. Um, and Lady of the Sunshine, I've been growing for the past four years, mm-hmm. um, started very small with just like a few barrels and now I'm up to about 1200 cases. So combined, oh, yeah. we're somewhere close, to maybe just north or just like close to 5,000 total. Gotcha. And, and I know, so Lady of the Sunshine is at least part of it. You are using a vineyard. So of course you're, uh, I mean, you're farming 6.5 acres, the Shane Vineyard, right? Yeah, the Shen Vineyard. Um, Shen, sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Yeah, the, I've that, been farming the Shen Vineyard since the beginning of 2018. And so I'm guessing the production depends on sort of what your yield is that year from the vineyard, whether it was a, a big year or a small year. Or do you, yeah. do you control that pretty well? I mean, are you pretty tight? Do you drop fruit? Do you... Shen's, the interesting part about Shen is it's planted to one acre of Chardonnay and then five and a half acres of Pinot Noir. Um, So I use all of the Chardonnay for my production for Lady of the Sunshine. Um, As far as the Pinot Noir, I produce probably about a third of the total fruit that comes off the property. Um, it's okay. in honesty, it's all, it's too much Pinot, <laughs> and it. then, yep. uh, <laughs> but it's also provided an, a really awesome opportunity to work with other local winemakers who are interested in purchasing biodynamic fruit. Um, gotcha. and yeah. so, and so it's a pretty amazing pro- idea actually. Well, it just works well for us because, because we can sell the fruit, it helps us cash flow the vineyard along with Gina making fruit from it and so it's kind of every it's kind of best of both worlds yeah exactly we get to work with our friends um they get to purchase fruit that's farmed really well and then um it insulates the the burden of the farming costs so that it can kind of just be diversified a little bit um yep small vineyards are the tricky part about the small vineyard is you still need all the same equipment at six and a half acres as you would a 20 acre vineyard so you still need the tractor and all the right implements and you have to be set up to be able to do everything else you would do on a larger property, even at six and a half acres. And that's why a lot of like smaller vineyards are farmed by management companies. Um, and so it's, it's, it's on the, it's a more rare side that a vineyard this size owns all their equipment and is farmed not by management company. And, and that, so that's one of like the coolest things about Gina's vineyard is that the owners did buy into the idea to make it um, kind of sustainable in the way that they own all their own equipment and they're not reliant on a, f- a farm management company. Got it. Yeah. So you're a, a true vineyard own in that sense where you, you're hands on all the way through the process from year round in the vineyard and in the winery. Yeah. It's, um, it's an incredible opportunity to have, to be able to get to know a place so intimately through farming it all year round. And then, to be able to seasonally make wine from it too. It, it really helps build a connection, um, which has drawn me closer to my wines through the process. Um, I love yeah. that. Well, well, let's, let's jump back then because I, I did sort of jump ahead. I, let's talk about your backgrounds. Um, Mikey, I think you're from the sort of Southern California area originally. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Ranch Cucamonga. So okay. east of LA. Um, southeast of LA in the in the Inland Empire um, wasn't always yep. a place I was necessarily pl- proud to be from, but I uh, through time and 
and just understanding like i actually love cucamonga i think um mm-hmm. it's an interesting place i i actually now today make wine from cucamonga there's some yes. really amazing old vineyards down there um and yes. historically it's an incredible um agricultural um area um it's you know it's lost that just through um just through the urban sprawl um of california right. Um, but at one time, Cucamonga was the largest grape growing region in the United States, um, kind of pre yeah, prohibition. I, I mean, I, I know the vineyards you're talking about. I'm hoping to also be making wine from that vineyard this year. We'll see. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. And with the yeah, Lofer like, or the Lopez? Lopez, Lopez. Nice. Yeah. So it, yeah. And 100 year old, dry farmed, certified organic, pretty crazy stuff, pre prohibition established right it, um, yeah it yeah. is like this craziest place like the Lopez Vineyard <laughs> is just so bizarre because we've driven past it a million times it's on the corner of the 15 freeway and the and the 210 freeway right um, right yeah it's like you're looking at freeways next to this <laughs> um, like one of the oldest vineyards in California it's and hilarious it's huge it's 100 acres um yeah but it gets a freaking it gets a quarter ton an acre because yeah exactly it's dry farmed and there's no inputs they don't spray um they they do do some tillage they disc the weeds right and and that's pretty much it other than prune it's just just sand too it's just it's like it it has more structure than just sand the hope when you're down by the ontario airport is literally sand um wow but the the lopez vineyard hat is like cobblestone like granite rocks and sand um wow and yeah supposedly the roots are going down as far as 40 feet um they they were irrigated for the majority of their for i guess the first half of their life they were flood irrigated um Uh, they haven't been irrigated since i want to say like sometime in the 70s or 80s oh wow which makes sense for how they how how they're just established in Cucamonga, you know, there's six inches of rain there. So right. um, establishing a dry farm vineyard would be rather tough. Take yeah. a lot of water in the beginning. It yeah. Like. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was presumably why the roots are so deep to reach whatever they can reach. Yeah, um, for sure. That, but yeah, I, so I grew up in Cucamonga. Um, you know, I did not come from a wine family. Um, my Yeah. So how, how did that happen? How did you go from <laughs> full circle from leaving Cucamonga getting into wine and coming back to make wine from Cucamonga. What, what was that journey? Yeah. You know, I, um, what I was the to, first step I should say that led you on that journey. Well, I guess the first step was basically going and finding myself in San Luis Obispo. And so, okay. um, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and I studied engineering. I have a degree okay. in engineering. Um, and while I was in school, you know, we would drink wine, to drink wine, you know, to get drunk probably. Um, right, and, sure. And we would go wine tasting and bike wine tasting, take our bikes out to the Edna Valley. And I just remember being like, wow, this is cool. But it was really nothing more than that. And then, um, you know, and then that started to become more of a habit and started to drink wine more and more. And and I worked an engineering job and I was 23 years old and I kind of had like an early midlife crisis and realized that I did not want to be sitting in a cubicle doing AutoCAD. Um, Mm. and I found, I got a job in a tasting room and, um, and then from there 
found a small vineyard to farm. So I, I kind of bullshitted my way into a little five acre vineyard in Santa Margarita that the guy let me and my friend farm where, where I ended up living for like four years and farming and then kind of just started chasing harvests. And so I worked in Santa Maria Valley and then I, I went to Tasmania and, and made wines over there. And that's oh. where you learned and that's your where, love for sparkling. You know, cider. that's where I learned like more detailed about how to make sparkling wine. And that is where I've really started to understand cider. And that cider were, was actually is a fruit wine. And Were you and, making cider there? Uh, I did make some cider there. Uh, um, or the producer that was across the street from where I worked was making cider. Um, okay. Delamere. And he was making like, he called it an apple wine and he, you know, they make a lot of sparkling wine there. So he had picked some apples and was make basically sparkling wine with cider. And that was the first kind of like, oh, like, it's not that different. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just apple juice instead of grape juice. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when I came back, I, there's a, some really cool orchards in, in Avila beach. Um, and, and no one was really making cider down down here at that time it, you know it was a lot of sweet cider like angry orchards and whatever else right and uh and so yeah in 2012 i made my first pinot noir and i and my white wine was going to be a cider so i made cider and pinot in 2012 and and uh you know i was just young and naive and didn't really have a plan i just just thought that i wanted to make wine and i knew eventually i would want to work for myself so i just kind of started um and then from there just the ball just kind of kept rolling and my evolution has continued. You know, I, I didn't start out by making or having an idea that I was going to be wanting to farm regenerative or organic or biodynamic or, or make natural wines. But as I started to fall further into the wine rabbit hole, I just kept evolving and have, and will continue to evolve, you know, like we, right. like we will continue to our preferences and styles will most likely continue to change and evolve into where we where we go. I love that. Yeah, it's uh, very similar. I, I mean, I, I know that journey. It's it, it's the unusual person who <laughs> starts out with a real clear philosophical thing, unless it's later in their life. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, but your first interest is just sort of in, in wine and that experience. And I mean, I first learned to make wine at home basically using a recipe, you know, which was right. like, you, had, <laughs> you know, you had this much yeast nutrients and this much yeast at this exactly. blah, 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 you know? Like, I mean, we had the same uh, experience because my first jobs, you know, I never made, I never worked for anyone that made wine how we make wine. Like it was right. a, a very reactionary winemaking, like recipe winemaking, like add this, add that. And as an, honestly, as an engineer, it didn't make much logical sense to me. It, it was like, why would just like even champagne, like method champagne makes no sense. Like, there's right. yeast and sugar in grapes. Like, why are you adding sugar from cane sugar and to make bubbles? Um, and the same thing with just yeast in, in, in wine, like inoculating or, or like adding tannin or all these different products that were being added. It just, when, when I worked for a place and it was like that, it, you know, the, by the time it was like my third vintage and I was understanding what was going on, it was like, why are, why are we doing this? Um, yeah, it's, I have tons of questions. Uh, you, if you've scanned any of the other episodes of this podcast, you probably know I have a a fondness for cider and have had some real apple uh, people on here from the East Coast. Um, 
And it sounds like you, from what I know, are making your cider in a kind of rare way, in a way that's, uh, I mean, a little more, it's, it's, it's a little more traditional from a American cider making standpoint, but not traditional from what, you know, people think of as cider. If you go to a bar and order cider, or f- even from what some of the f- finer ciders, which tend more towards that method, Champenoise style. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your cider making? Like, so, I mean, so I have an episode with Andy Brennan. Um, okay, cool from Aaron Burr and it yeah. sounds like you guys are doing something very similar in in stylistically at least in the Yeah, in I've been a big fan making. of his ciders for a long time. They're kind of hard to find around here so we don't drink yeah. much of them. But um like 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 my wine career, my cider careers had an evolution, but you know, currently what I do and I, I've been working with one orchard now for the last five vintages and it's in Aptos, California and it it's it's owned Where is by that? Aptos is like South Santa Cruz, kind of close okay. inland Coralitos. And okay. it's an old apple region. Um, and it's uh, owned by my friend, um, the Theriots. And they, their gra- Kyle's grandpa planted the orchard in the 1940s. And, um, and his dad farmed, his grandpa farmed it, and then his dad farmed it, and now he's farming it. And Kyle's the viticulturalist for Ridge at Montebello. Oh, really? Okay. And so he... You know, it's really, it's a really special place and it's, it's dry farmed. It's, it's farmed with no inputs other than pruning. Um, and it's old American varieties. So it's Newtown Pippin, which is one of America's first apples. It came from Queens, like the late 1700s um, and, and kind of moved its way across the, across the country. And anyway, so all my cider comes from there. Um, and, and just um, my traditional cider, like my cider, that's just normal cider uh is barrel fermented it's aged in barrel for a full year and then the next year i blend in fermenting cider from the same orchard about 10 percent, and bottle it and so there's really not much to that cider that's just trying to show a, like a terroir and a purity of what that cider is and newtown pippin is great because it has good acidity and it has tannin um nice. it's a little darker it's not like just a thin acidic cider it's it's kind of chewy and and textured um and so i I really like that cider and then um lately as as in the last few years i used to also make a hop cider i stopped doing that and now i'm kind of just i think in in 2018 i started making Mm -hmm. co-ferment ciders and so um i was doing a hop cider and it was really popular and i i liked it because the hops brought these really cool aromatics to the cider. I would use mm. Nielsen Sauv and Amarillo and it would bring these like tropical citrus tones. And, but the problem was I just didn't really know where the hops were coming from. It was really hard to uh, like understand the sourcing of them and how they were farmed. We also had a cellar full of tropical Sauvignon Blanc. Exactly. So <laughs> it was like, you know what, how can I not purchase stuff like that? And I can work with produce that is grown locally. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I co-fermented cider with some Sauvignon Blanc that Gina was using and that gave me the tropical tones. And then I got lime leaves from my friend's orchard up in, um, Cambria, Cambria. And I, and I basically like steeped the cider in lime leaves. And so it was like this kind of Sauv Blanc cider co-ferment with lime leaves. And so I'll do like a normal cider and then I do a co-ferment cider. Um, and I kind of changing it up each year, like in 2021. For 2020, 
I, I did like a mondoose co-ferment cider um, with some mondoose that Raj Parr was growing up in Cambria. Um, and, and I did a Gruner cider and then I did my, my traditional cider. Did, did, did you have a favorite of any of those? Did any of those really work? I mean, it sounds like you're sort of trying different things. Did, yeah, did any well, of those... they do different things for sure. The Mondu cider is, it's dark. It's a red wine, it's like Lembrusco. And uh, it is tannic and funky. It's probably the most interesting of the bunch. Um, interesting is a loaded word. It is a loaded <laughs> word. I, I, you know, I, I think it's the most, um, yeah, maybe interesting is the right word. It's just like, it has a lot of stuff going on. You know, it's like, which is not what you expect from a cider, like the amount of right. linen and the amount of color. Yeah. And it's like, it has like sarsaparillas and cola, and then it's like salty and like a little natty, if you will, just because there's no sulfur. So it, it's like, okay, it has this like natural wine vibe that maybe a lot of my wines don't <laughs> totally have because I use sulfur. Um, right. And then I think my favorite is and it has traditionally just been the co-ferment with the white wine. So it's a Gruner Veltlinger cider with lime leaves. And it's like Gina calls it like jungle juice. It's just like green and tropical and like. It goes down way too easy. Yeah, they're dangerous. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, those, I I don't know if I really truly have a favorite. They're all pretty different, which is, which is good. You know, I have three ciders that are pretty drastically different from each other. Um, okay. And yeah. I love it, that. It, it's fun. I, mean, I like making cider and it's, it's relatively low work, you know? Um, oh, and then actually lastly, I did make one more cider and this one was not normal, but, um, I've been, a have had a crush on Mount Hood Organics, which is a orchard up in Oregon, which is very far away and not typically my cup of tea to drive so far to get cider, but we wanted to go visit Nate Reddy at Hiu. And yeah. um, we combined a trip to visit Nate and pick up um, a big mix of apples from Mount Hood Organics, um, which is a biodynamic certified orchard in, in like the base of Mount Hood. Okay. Um, and so that's in barrel right now. Oh, nice. So is it something you might do again or? Yeah, I'm probably going to or... do it again. I, I That one's going to be a slightly different. I'm going to make a non-vintage Solera um, style cider. Um, okay. And so that one will be a few years in the works. So do you have to have a different um, crusher, like a different different equipment in general for the cider versus your winemaking? No. Like you know, we crush, use our basket crush. press to press the Mount Hood organic stuff. Um, okay. And I do have two baskets. And so I use one basket for the apples and then one basket for my, my red wines. Um, okay. Our white wines are all pressed in our bladder, in our bladder press. And then we have a okay. basket press, like kind of like a wood hydraulic basket press that we press all our red wines in all right is that just uh it's gentle more gentle with the bladder press for the whites yeah the, i mean no the the basket press inverse. is actually more gentle um oh, okay there's no reverse. spinning That's... so if you think of a bladder press the way a bladder press works is um you load it and it, it presses and then it spins so it breaks right. the cake and then it presses right. again and Good point. Yep. spinning is actually much more harsh and you can get you can, more tannin. yeah you can get more tannin and oxidation and just extraction so traditionally red wine is pressed in a basket press and then a bladder press is pretty great for unfermented white wine you get you get got it a, so you're more, just get, getting the juice out is as 
like getting every drop of juice versus the red you want to you you've already got a lot of extraction it's already yeah you know the red the basket press is interesting so it it doesn't get like the the tannins are different so you have more gentle tannins because of not the movement of the bladder and then also Uh you get less solids so the the juice actually filters through the cake and and you don't get oh, um, yeah. as much sediment, like laziness. Mm-hmm. And right, so right. it's really great for wines that you don't have to rack. So we don't rack any of our wines and, and we until bottling. Until bottling. Yeah. And so our we're on like really nice leaves and we get really good leaves through a basket press. Versus a bladder press, you're gonna have a lot more laziness and you, you might have some reduction or some bad bad leaves right. um that can give some funk to the wine so you'll typically do a racking on those kind of wines i've noticed that as well so w- what is the advantage to have being able to stay on the fine leaves and from your perspective mm, there's a lot of advantages um but yeah. i guess my, my, the first advantage that i can think of is dissolve co2 um mm-hmm. and so as making natural wines like we, we want to have as many um advantages as we can and so the more dissolved co2 in the wine the less likely it is to oxidize the less likely it's a natural preservative and um and so dissolved co2 comes out in a in in a warmer cellar and then with more wine movements and so by not having to rack i'm going to keep more of this dissolved co2 in my wine um it also goes into less oxygen because you're not racking exactly less oxygen because i'm not racking and then lees is just a pretty magical um substance and it's almost like a natural filter like we've added it if we have any white wines we do most of our fermentations for white wine in barrel and if anything Mm -hmm. ends up going a little reduced we can add clean lees to it and it'll kind of Mm -hmm. filter through the wine it's like a fine and yeah yeah, finds it out basically can pull out bad aromatics also also have you found it helpful in 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 sort of what's the word i'm looking for giving nutrition for malolactic fermentation as well yeah, so definitely get, can. Oh. We we haven't actually done that, but I I know that I've heard that. That's basically just what it's like yeast holes, you know. So it's um yeah, yeah. So exactly, it, it's a natural. It, and, and that's I've I mean one of the techniques I've heard for sort of helping mallow fill it, finish is just stirring the lees. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. So, and I, and yeah. I don't typically like to much stir my lees, but when I smell some Chardonnay barrels and it's like oh this wine's like going slow through mallow. Like we'll st- I'll stir the lees and get the lees up in solution, yeah. and that will it t- typically like freshens up the wine as well, um, because the lees has like a redox potential, or and it, it can basically kind of make the wine go back into a more reduced state, um, and so it's pretty lees lees is definitely our friend, um, yeah, on on <laughs> all, you, on did, all wines really. Have you had the ability to sort of compare something that? you used you know that it was on the lees versus not to say whether you got a textural component out of the lees in the finished wine i mean that's a great question Um, i don't think we've done anything in comparison like that because we've kind of always used utilized lees in our winemaking um yeah i can't we've always say that we have we always invite texture on our wines as well. So it's, and, you know, I, into it. I aged my whites for a long time to try to get as much lees, like a tall assist as I can. My, my whites are on lees for like 17 or 18 months. Oh, wow. And, and that's because I picked the wines on the earlier side for the natural acidity. They go through full mallow. 
they get picked, you know, early, like 19 to 20 bricks. And if they're bottled too soon, they're a bit too austere. Um, and, yeah. and so I use the extended aging both for the slow oxidation and the autolysis in the lees to bring this component of richness to the wine um, without so this- having to use new oak or, oh, you know, or picking too ripe to where the acidity is not where I want. Yeah, I, so I tasted your Scar of the Sea Chardonnay recently. Um, thank you guys yeah. for the bottles, the samples. That was awesome. I had to share them with other people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wendy and I couldn't plow through all four bottles ourselves, unfortunately. But uh, um, so that Chardonnay is distinctive. Um, first of all, to me, it, it you know, and I, I, I don't even want to, say anything about it but i want to kind of know the winemaking behind it to see if my guesses are right about it but um you know it had a real strong aromatic quality that was what i would associate with i mean it it was like popcorn to me sort of corn nut you know like what i would expect from a a, not necessarily the style of wine that i would associate with you but Mm -hmm. then the finish was like razor sharp like a just an acid slice at the end. Um, I so what you've said now that matches up. But what what about that um, the corn nut? You know, that... I don't know because I haven't drank that wine just totally recently. Um, but okay. that wine, you this know, was the Bassi. It's a Bassi Chardonnay. So that wine comes from a vineyard um, in Avila Beach that's farmed organic. Um, it's on sandstone. It's on sand. Um, it for me, it has a, a reduced. Um, aspect which comes from the the soils there are really thin and and it's not fertilized so the yan is yeah. low uh, on those yeah. grapes and so it's naturally slightly reduced um yeah yeah and, and then the combo there also is that that wine's aged for a long time and it goes through full mallow um the zippiness and like the 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 acid part is because it's picked early you know it has a finish sure, pH sure. 3.1 um, oh wow! <laughs> but uh, but like the maybe the popcorn or corn nut is through full mallow, and then also probably the oak aging. There is a little touch of new oak on that wine, and I was wondering, yeah, that's I mean, because it... that's not necessarily as like intended. Um, that's because that wine is aged in large um, five hundred liter barrels, uh-huh. and you can't find used, used yeah i've tried i know liter barrels i've searched far and wide yep. and so yep. if you want I'm on, to slow i'm like on a list for those actually yeah. <laughs> if, if, my name, i'm like to, just call me if you ever get any yeah no one will ever do that <laughs> yeah i know i know there's probably 10 other 20 100 other people who have said that to them yeah um, but yeah, so no, just like, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, if you want to have those barrels to make wine, and eventually at one point you need to have a small amount of them new, because that's the only way that you can get yeah. the barrels you want add to your collection. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. you know, uh, as the time goes on, that wine will become less and less oaky. Um, but yeah, that vintage had a percentage of new oak, so there's going to be an oak aspect. I don't hate yeah. the oak actually. I I actually liked it. It makes the wine be a bit more classic. Um, and Burgundian, if you will, than than say at my complete true style is. Um, yeah, but I think that I, the oak plays well with the acid there. Like that wine is so tight and and has yeah. so much energy that a little bit of the richness that comes from the oak is yep. a good, is a good thing. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, those were my guesses. I was like, I was like, it's, I, I, I was like, I can't imagine this, but I, I have to guess that there was some new oak in this. <laughs> I imagined a really long, slow, malolactic mm-hmm. transition because that would, that would lend to that sort of dicetal element being a little more prominent. Um, so those were my guesses, basically. And, and I like, like mallow yeah. in wine. So all my wines yeah, are yeah. full mallow. Um, and well, they're, they're stable that way. I don't have to do anything exactly, with the wine. Exactly, and so right. that's what I do prefer. You know, and then the oak, um, you know, it that's it's aged in like light toast, like Austrian oak. And so it's oh, it's not even <laughs> like, it's like as far from toasty as you can get. And it's still, to, to an experienced taster, like you can pick it up, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah. Sure. Well, and and look, I I totally agree. I mean, this is a really good example. Like, if you want to do a, a large format, uh, what are those called? Demi mudes or what yeah, are they're they? punchins, yeah. or it's like a five punchins. Punchins. That's right. A punchin. Um, th- I mean, you you have to use some new, and I I just think like a total prohibition against new oak seems silly because you know like that's just part of the evolution of winemaking like you you get a barrel it's new and then you use it for 10 years and it's eventually it's not new you know and then you get to taste the exactly you're making you know wine changes and you're you you could even use it on different you could have different programs you know you could have a a new wine that you put you know a certain vineyard does really well with new oak and so you put all of your new through that for a couple years and then transition it to another more elegant vineyard that really doesn't stand up to new oak or it's a different grape that doesn't stand up as well i just think there's so many you know it's it's a paintbrush it's a it's one of the i mean it's a it's a palette of different things that you can use as as you're painting with and i think it's just reading vineyards and reading the wine and and experimenting and i think it adds something lovely like you said when when it's done right when it's the right wine and everything i think chardonnay with oak is fantastic most times I yeah mean, i mean I, I i don't think that like you know it's not done as a dogmatic or a recipe thing it's just exactly what you said it's like i wanted larger format barrels for space and to to ferment in and then they have to be new at some point and and yeah. change you know and yeah. and when one when one goes bad eventually someday i'm going to have to get another new one and it's yeah. going to do it's going to do that and i like the saying how um oak can be used like salt in cooking you want right. it to be so intertwined into the flavors that you can't essentially pick it out it's it just enhances everything else and like yes. we we yeah. love barrels you know we ferment every like all our whites are fermented in barrel and all yeah. of our wines are aged in barrel and like oak is amazing yep. and like yeah new oak can be distracting in wine and and i don't like that distraction either um but the use of oak is crucial to how we make our wines um yeah yeah well gina i didn't forget about you i want to hear <laughs> your story now <laughs> where wh- you're where are you from and and what what got you started Yeah, of course. Um, So I grew up in Southern California as a kid, but my family moved us up to Northern California to the Sierra Foothills when I was eight years old. Um, Okay. Why'd they do that to you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) My parents fell down the the rabbit hole of wine when we were living in Huntington Beach. My parents joined a, a tasting group. Um, and started making wine in their garage in our Huntington Beach house. Um, And then they started searching for property to go move away to to plant a vineyard um, and change their careers. Um, My dad was from close to Sacramento, so he knew of the small town Placerville. 
um, that's between Sacramento and South Lake Tahoe. And we bought 90 acres back in the year 2000. Um, the following year, we planted 15 acres of grapes. Um, and my dad started to learn how to farm. Um, we... <laughs> that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible to look back on their journey. And 20 years later, you know, today, they're still farming and making wine and hustling. Um, but they've built something really incredible. Um, the vineyard's called Narrowgate Vineyards. Um, and it was, it wasn't initially that my dad, uh, connected all the dots to farming organically. Um, it wasn't really until a few years in that he realized and had the epiphany that, you know, if we're living on the property and if this is now something that's going to be long-term, <laughs> um, we need to do it in the best way possible to maintain the health of our family and the land, um, and he had a really good friend, Philip Hart, um, who started Ambeth Estates, which is um, here on the Central oh, yeah. Coast in, in Templeton. My dad has been long, long time friends with Philip. And Philip was really the bug in his ear that planted the seed of biodynamic farming and would send my dad books and articles. And, um, and he was really the start for my dad to get into biodynamics. Um, but yeah, so, and I, so it's. That, that vineyard is now certified biodynamic. Yeah. Is that so, yep. It was in 2008 we received our uh, Demeter certification for biodynamics. Um, and then I, I guess I didn't really fall into wine until I rediscovered it on my own. Um, wine was so ingrained into our family um, and, you know, where we lived and, and my summers were spent, you know, helping my dad in the vineyard and, and at the winery after school during harvest, um, it was just too too close. I needed to go out and explore other interests before coming back to wine. Um, and it really wasn't until I turned 21 um, and I was studying biology um, at Sonoma State. I started working for a winery there in the Russian River Valley um, and totally got hooked by Pinot Noir. It was a new varietal to me because my parents grow Rhone varietals mostly. Um, uh. And there was just yeah. this novelty all of a sudden to wine that I hadn't really experienced before. Um, so that's around the time when I changed my major to winemaking and I ended up transferring schools down to Cal Poly here in San Luis Obispo. Oh, nice. But you guys, that's not where you guys met at school, is it? Not necessarily. We were a few years apart in school, so we never okay. um, linked up there. It wasn't until I was working for a local winery once I transferred down here um, I was working for Shamazal in the Edna Valley and Mikey had worked there a few years prior to me, to me being there. Um, and he had stayed in close relationship with everyone who worked there. They were all of Mikey's friends. Um, and we actually got set up unbeknownst to me by <laughs> <laughs> our wonderful friend, Andrea, who was my boss at the time. Um, she was our Cupid. Yeah. Nice. That's great. Well, yeah. you also have been around to some interesting places around you, you uh, around the planet, right? Yeah. Um, I always wanted to travel and study abroad in school, but I, since I changed my major and changed universities, I was on the five-year plan already and my parents were going to kill me if I took any longer. <laughs> so as soon as I graduated, um, I went and uh, worked a vintage in Beaujolais okay. uh, for a small family estate. Um, 
I was there for about three or four months, and then I went down to central Otago in New Zealand, and I worked for Burn Cottage down there, which was probably one of my favorite places I've worked and lived. Um, I worked in the vineyard there for three months before harvest, which was a really great experience to get to know to know the region, to know the place, to get to know the wines before we made them. Um, and and then I worked three months in the cellar. That was kind of the biggest experience for Connecting Dots was that year because I got to have a close-up relationship with the vineyards than I got to make the wines from. Um, That's great. Yeah, after New Zealand, I jumped up to the Willamette Valley in Oregon and I worked mm-hmm. um, for Josh Bergstrom, who is an absolute legend. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I found my way down to Napa Valley. Um, and then that's kind of where Mikey and I came back together. We took a hiatus after I graduated um, and went to France. And then and then our paths crossed again once I was back in California. And that's also nice. the same year. This was back in 2017. Um, I was working for a biodynamic estate on Hell Mountain. And it was an incredibly beautiful, like perfect perfectly farmed vineyard. Um, but then on the winemaking side, it was, I, it was finally at the point in my career where I connected the dots, um, kind of like how Mikey was saying, where it was like, why are we adding these things that already exist naturally in the wines? Um, right. And I would call Mikey complaining. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> he'd be like, well, you just need to make your own wines, you know? So he was really the one who pushed me to, to launch Lady of the Sunshine. I love it. Yeah. Um, so, so you guys have both brought up that evolution and, you know, one that I've been through and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that sort of dawning awareness about everything in life. I mean, it's wine is part of this whole picture of, you know, where pieces of the puzzle start to fall in and you just realize like how big of an impact agriculture and eating local and, you know, organic farming, you know, all these choices that we make, you know, multiple times a day of what we consume, you know, really informs these things. And as consumers, we have this power to change that. And I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but bringing it back to wine, the, the, this idea of, you know, evolving into this awareness of, hey, there's a more, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know what the word is. Maybe that's the question to you is like, what is that? What is that real? How would you describe that relationship with wine that that develops as you learn that you don't have to add things that you don't, you know, that there is a, you know, I'm going to hesitate to say anything because I don't want to add any ideas. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a switch in perspective of seeing wine, not as just a product, but like as a living thing that has this powerful ability to show transparency back to a plot of land. Um, And that's, I'm sorry. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I really think it comes from experiencing a place and like having an intimate relationship with a place and being able to steward it or farm it. Um, like you notice the daily changes that can be so small, but and it's the same thing that you notice in your wine, you know, during the process of fermentation and and how the temperature fluctuates and how the flavors can change and, and it's, and it's lifetime. Um, but it's understanding that it, it is a living thing that transforms on a daily basis. And your job is to kind of usher it along on its life of going from, you know, juice to vinegar 
and we're trying to capture this this sense in time of the wine um, where we think it's at its purest, most potent form. I mean, that's that's why we use sulfur in our wines. We're trying to capture it in its purest form. Um, that, maybe that makes it taste how we envision exactly that that place is right. Like uh, just the idea that wine can taste like a place and and a vintage and not necessarily like a like yeast or like bacteria or something that is avoided when you use a small amount of sulfur. And we want the wines to have variation from year to year. Like there's, we're going to make decisions based on how we make wine, based on the influences from the environment of the growing season every year. And like there's, some years are cooler, some years are warmer. The wines should- waves or fires or something that we, forces us to pick grapes at certain times. Totally. So like we want variation, we want expression, um, and that's all- in hopes of producing a product that's not just a product that it's it's like a you know a peak hole into a place but we also like <laughs> addressing your yeah, question i think like we've started to look at wine in the same way that we look at food and just like simple um simple is often always better um less is more yeah and like yeah. the the idea of like what we cook with is going to be the quality of the food. And the same thing goes with the wine. Right. It's like how the soil is treated, how the vineyards treated, like that is what makes the wine good or bad, honestly. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it makes I, it I, way more fun. Like we're not just making wine, like farming a vineyard is, is so much like being a vineyard is is so much more fulfilling than just making wine. Um, and, and then challenging yourself to farm, regenerative or organic and like using tools that mother nature gives you farming with nature instead of like fighting with them it is mm-hmm. an incredible cool like challenge that's super fulfilling when it's accomplished yeah i uh, well said both of you I, I i what i've found too is it becomes almost a rabbit hole where I, i'm now you know the deeper i get into trying to integrate natural processes into winemaking i'm now envisioning sort of like just vines growing in forests using trees as the trellis you know what i mean where it's like it becomes almost it's like a rewilding of the idea of wine where it's like the idea even the idea of vineyards is almost becoming too uh structured and too rigid in my mind in terms of like how it's you know how what that ecosystem could be potentially of course you know, there's trade-offs there. <laughs> like the ability to farm it would become much more difficult <laughs> and, and you know, not have animals and birds eat it. Um, but, you know, this is where my mind goes, you know. No, it's like yeah, a, I mean, I like think you're talking about like the idea of biodiversity and like also just like the most beautiful vineyard is a vineyard that looks like it's a natural part of the landscape. Um, yeah. And like the idea of like having vineyards that don't need to be tilled and having the, the natives like thriving in the ground, like that's farming in unison with nature, um, which I think is the goal of, of most of the people in this world we're talking about is to, is to farm as if it's naturally there. Yeah. Yep. I I love that. And, and I think it's important to say, I'm I'm just going to do a little uh, thing here with sulfites that, you know, using them especially i'm sure at the level that you guys are using them which is a minimal effective level 
is not it's not like you're just stopping the wine from evolving you you're basically protecting its evolution from being distorted by spoilage microbes is the way i would you know try to put it i guess it's uh you know the wine is still going to evolve the wine is still going to be a living thing but you've you've inhibited a microbial life that would turn it to vinegar very quickly or you know whatever add add some other off thing like mouse taint or something like that gina touched on the idea that like wine is basically goes from juice to vinegar and and the use of a small amount of sulfur extends the time period where the wine is the most enjoyable to us Um, right and so and it also extends the period where it tastes as if we intended it to taste um in meaning it's it tastes of that place and of that vintage. Um, yeah. And so it's not necessarily tainted by some sort of microbial taint or it's oxidized too early. Those um, are all distractions. Yeah. That, yeah. The true potential. And those might happen eventually. Yeah. Um, but we'd prefer if they didn't happen, you know, while our customers purchase them to drink them because we don't think right. those are necessarily the, the goals of what we were trying to produce. And that's definitely not the goal of what we were, what we spent a year farming and then a year making. And so to add, you know, 40 parts of sulfur to a wine total, it, it seems like a pretty fair trade-off to make something that we've made for two years. Um, well, and it's also very methodical yeah. too. Like this is the only thing that we're adding to our wine and it's, it's with good intention to capture this, this thing we're talking about. But um, you know, it's, it's methodical and we're looking at the chemistry of the wine and breaking it down to what's the pH and, and, and how, how much, much does it need? Like it might not need any, right. or it might need nine right. parts, you know, like I made yeah. a Chardonnay last year that literally got 10 parts of sulfur because yeah, the, pH because the pH was, was so was low. Three, one. Yeah. You know, it's like, right. it doesn't need any. Um, but I feel like that was the one I drank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chances are that wine will last forever. And that's also why yeah. aging wine for a long time in barrel um, is because it becomes stable naturally. Like, right. Um, the wine is crystal clear. There's no microbial issues. It's gone through all its fermentations. Um, yeah. And I, I, I mean, just to, to even to step back from sulfates or anything like that, I, I, what you guys were saying before that, I, 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 the way I put it is I, I use a, a photography analogy because I hate posed photos. Um, and I would put sort of like what we think of as manipulative winemaking in that camp of sort of like a posed photo, whereas like, you know, for our wedding, Wendy and I had, we, we strictly instructed our photographer and videographer that we only wanted candid, never make us stop and do like a, a dip or whatever. Um, you know, like, like please just candids. And we, cause it's just, it's a thing. Like we just love that. And it's also like, we didn't want to take time out of living the moment to, and I'm, I'm going off in a tan. I will, this is related to wine, but it's, you know, we, we didn't want to take time out from living to pose for something false. Um, we wanted them to capture what was actually the true joy of that moment, totally. candidly. Yeah. And I feel like with winemaking, it's, you know, the better photographer is the person who manipulates themselves and positions themselves to capture the light in the right way, to capture the moment in the right way at the right time rather than try to manipulate that's 100 percent. i mean that's why like the biggest decision we make is when we pick the grapes as far as like, yep. the winemaking decision like there's bigger right. decisions made in the vineyard before that like how the how it's pruned and when it's thinned and how the ground is kept but like as far as when the winemaking starts 
it, you're all set right. up by when you pick your grapes and how you manipulate yourself to decide that wine's fate. Like, because then if the acid is right and the ripeness is right, not much needs to happen to the wine. It, it's, it's way more easy to make unmanipulated, if you will. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that vision of beauty that, you know, everything has beauty. It's a mom- it's just trying to find, find it, you know, it's finding that beauty, whether, you know, through the timing and perspective on it. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's really beautiful. <laughs> um, Gina, you, you're, you clearly had a theme with Oregon, Beaujolais and Central Otago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, <laughs> all all favorites of mine as well um and and yeah i mean oregon especially because it's probably just because it's closer uh and have, i've visited it's you know big big on our our list of places mm-hmm. um but you're and you are farming pinot and a little chardonnay um but what ha, is in other ways have you been influenced by those regions and i mean are is that what you're going for with your brand as well with Lady of the Sunshine? Um, I think, I mean, the obvious theme there was Pinot Noir um, and working in cool climate regions. But mm-hmm. what I really chose to focus on was working for wineries and vineyards that were prioritizing biodynamic farming. Oh, um, lovely. Yeah. Once I graduated from the winemaking program, I I, it was so apparent to me, especially after gaining a degree where they taught us recipe winemaking um, and farming and conventional farming was considered traditional farming. Um, I was like, I got to get out of here and I got to go expose myself to people who I can be inspired by. And that was really what I wanted to do was go seek out as many biodynamic producers as possible and go be, go and be a sponge. Um, I felt like I was really lucky with growing up with parents who were one in the industry, but then they also prioritized farming for the future and with an emphasis on biodynamic farming. Um, and I really wanted to understand why that wasn't more mainstream um, because it was so obvious to me because it was a part of my, you know, upbringing. Um, and so working in all those regions, I worked for people who worked with biodynamic vineyards, bought grapes from biodynamic vineyards. Um, but again, you know, I wasn't really making the wine that I'm making now for Lady of the Sunshine. There was, and, and yeah, um, I mean, that was really the theme. I wanted to go and learn as much as I could about biodynamics. And it wasn't really until I started farming the Shen Vineyard in 2018 that through the act of doing it myself, like the dots truly started to connect. Um, and What are some of those observations that you that you can share? It's almost like you have to see the vineyard, like at least from, from my view is like, mm-hmm. I just remember we look at old pictures and we look at pictures and the vineyard was farmed organic, but like there's definitely a spectrum on how things are farmed when it's just said organic. Um, right. And yeah, it's like the weeds, like noticing the difference in the weeds. And like, so when he took the pictures the first few years, it was like the vineyard was covered in, in mustard and malva. And like, not really like... Which are invasive weeds um, and not mm. part of the natural landscape. And now, you know, three years later and creating seed banks and like letting our cover crops go to seed and like 
putting the right weeds to outcompete these other weeds. Like you go through and the vineyard is covered in, in lupin and poppies and, and beans and vetch and all these, um, you know, different types of weeds that are benefiting the soil much more than, you know, mustard and, and malva. It's also a different perspective too, in like what you think and what you're taught a vineyard should look like. Like a mm-hmm. vineyard should mimic nature. There's not always natural order in nature. Like things are kind of messy and like, yeah. Or the, <laughs> I guess the, the natural order yeah. is not what we picture as order. Like you right. have to reprogram what you're taught as order. And it's like, pristine napa looking vineyards is not natural order well and having a you know dark green canopy all the way past harvest into you know october november isn't natural like the vines should want to shut down and you should start to see that when the seasons start to change like yeah when you look at gina's vineyard in the fall she it's like wow all the other vineyards are green and gina's is yellow mine's like almost asleep (laughs) (laughs) and and like to an un an uneducated person and not uneducated but maybe like just not aware of these dots it might look like ooh, she's not really doing very good at that vineyard but and that's the same thing when someone comes to the vineyard and is used to seeing order but like someone that has seen the dots, you come to Gina's Vineyard, it's like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful because it's the perfect messy, you know? And then yeah. also when you're driving the vineyards in the fall and you're like, wow, that vineyard's like going through senescence and is losing its leaves. And and you're like, well, they probably don't fertilize or, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, right? like, and so understanding that is like, you start to, I, I start to see things, you start to see things differently. Like you start to see these vineyards that, to maybe an untrained eye look beautiful, but to someone who understands the dots is like, oh man, that looks like a really conventionally farmed vineyard. <laughs> gotcha. Yep. Yep. I, I know exactly what you mean. You guys have these two different wineries. Do you, what is the, how would you describe the differences between the two? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> is it just different vineyards that you guys are, you know, getting fruit from and you're, practicing different things obviously you're doing cider with scar of the sea i think there's a combination there right like you touched on it with different vineyards so different regions different terroirs in that way um but gene and i we were trained differently um we came from different backgrounds we have similar philosophies and ethics as far as how we want things to be farmed and how we like to make wines but that being said you know wines made in a hundred to a thousand small decisions. And like, because of our different training and our different personalities, personalities, we make those decisions differently. And and those small decisions make up your wine. Um, And, and so that is like the beauty of, of a product that has so many decisions is they can be so different from each other, even though (laughs) they're made with the intent of good farming and, you know, simple winemaking. And, but the, the wines are drastically different, you know, whether it's they're aged in oak longer or they're, you know, I, I don't know, just the yeah, different sure. choices. Like I was talking about the destemmer that I just bought and Gina was like, well, I don't destem any of my grapes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, you no, know, I guess you're right. You're never going to use this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I could That's care less Canada. about your new destemmer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, speaking of your wines. 
so I, I I got a little box in the mail on Tuesday, which was perfect. It was my day off, and I opened it. And the first thing I noticed is no capsules on your wines, which I am a huge fan of not using capsules. And we are uh, too. I mean, yeah. why why are you? Why why well, has that choice been made? It it doesn't serve a purpose for us. Um, it's just a waste of um it's a waste of material. So it's it's talk of like talking about like sustainability or like just um, It's the like, first thing you remove from the bottle. Like just packaging, um, yeah. like talking about just packaging is a giant um energy draw in in wine. Yeah. Um it's it probably yeah. makes up the biggest um greenhouse gas emission for wine would probably be what the pack how packaging is and so like the weight of the glass is really important you you might have also noticed that we use um i would it's considered lightweight glass it's you know it's pretty yep. light um it's also green glass which is a, a very recyclable color of glass um mm, and then okay. capsules are just they just go straight in the trash and they're made yeah. of metals and they're shipped from spain and so there's just no reason for it <laughs> yep um yep i'm right there with you on all those points (laughs) with our wine as well and then uh i noticed in lady of the sunshine you have an ingredients list which i'm a huge fan of as well very limited ingredients which is also funny it's those of us who often are willing to put ingredients lists or least need it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's like yeah grapes and a little bit of salt yeah (laughs) i mean that's just I really wanted to include an ingredients list to draw the attention to how it is not a part of typical labeling on wine. Um, yep. And consumers should be asking about what ingredients are in their wine. And it's impossible to find on the internet if you're trying to Google a wine. Um, it's hard to get transparency from the people that make the wine sometimes. And so this yeah. was the simplest way to start the conversation for me. Yeah, no, it, that. Yep, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I've, I saw an ingredients list recently on a bottle of wine at Ralph's. And I think it was because, I think the only reason it was there is because it was Ralph's organic wine. Like mm. Ralph's now has their own organic wine wow, that's brand. Cool. Yeah, it is great. I'm, I'm fully in support of that. But it's, it's funny because a lot of times, uh, not, not always, but at that level when you're putting, I think, like an organic s- statement beyond just the ingredients label, you're required to put ingredients on it as well. Mm-hmm. So I've heard this from other producers. So if you're trying to say made with organic grapes, for example, the TTB person, yeah, they will, might require you to list your ingredients. And so it was funny because it was like, you know, Ralph's Organic Cab from Paso Robles and then you turn it around and the ingredients, this is like 10 <laughs> ingredients. Oh, wow. I no. never yeah, <laughs> That's interesting. I've seen that yeah. on a Bonnie Dune bottle before. Oh, yeah. Um, it was like, wow, there's real stuff in there. And then yeah, in, yeah. in the Ridge bottle, they almost always add acid and water. And they, you know, they write on there like water, tartaric acid, sulfur, grape. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's and, and, and I like, is appreciate that personally. Me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing it voluntarily, like because they're not that that I know is voluntary. Yeah, no, I know. That and I think that too. is fantastic. And they can defend every one of those choices, which I love. You know, they that and if if you know anything about winemaking, you can understand why they probably did it based on like you know what what grapes they are and right. You know, and the it, alcohol level and, and that it kind gives of the person a choice to say, oh, you know, I don't want I don't want to buy that wine because of this. Right. 
Right. And that's yeah, what... like the Ralphs, the Ralphs one, uh, you know, gelatin was one of them. And and it's like, look, if you're vegan, now you know, like they use horse hooves in your wine. Yeah. Like, uh, so maybe you don't want to buy it um, or whatever, whatever animal, the product that gelatin came from. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I just think it's like, stand by it. If you're going to put it in, like, you know, hey. We'll have take the, ownership have... of it. Oh, yeah. No. Be yeah. the back of the decision to justify why you're adding things to wine. Yeah. And yeah. No. So then we we tasted. So then we tasted all your wines. Um, and so my question for you guys is: Do you guys ever get into friendly competitions uh, between your <laughs> different wines? <laughs> I don't think so. We we have favorites, um, and you they know, change we like, frequently too. Like each other's yeah. wines a lot. Um, okay, you know, and just like anyone, like there's like, and that's a funny thing about the wine industry. Like I don't, you know, I'm a competitive person, but like. I don't believe in competition within the wine industry. Like I'm not competing yeah. with anyone. Like we yep. are in the same industry and we're here to help each other. And so like, then that goes for how me and Gina treat each other's wines. And that's how it goes for how I treat my friend's wines. Like I want everyone's wines to be able to sell and to be successful. Like I, I'm not trying to like be competitive on that. And so we don't truly really compete with our wines. Like I love Gina's Chardonnay the most. And it's not, mm. it's not like my Chardonnay at all, but like, it's, it's my favorite wine that she makes. And I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, I, it's, it's like, we are definitely a team. We work together almost every minute of every day. And so, you know, who, depending on our task and what we're doing, one person will take the lead and the other person will help. And that switches all the time. Um, and it's just really helped us build our ability to work as a team. And, and it's Mikey's success is my success and, and vice versa. Yeah. And that yeah. goes for other people too. Exactly. Like your success yeah, is you our success, it. you know? Like, yeah, um, no, I, I'm so glad you guys are doing what you're doing. Honestly, it just thrills me. And it's like learning about you and about any, you know, more people who are doing what you're doing just gives me more wine to drink. <laughs> like, <laughs> more, it's like, oh, great. Like there's somebody else doing beautiful, you know, farming with, you know, very limited, minimal intervention winemaking, you know, trying to just, you know, philosophically, like I, I can't believe how in alignment my what I want from wine is what you guys are making. And that just thrills me. You know, it's like the, whenever I find that I'm just like, yay. Um, well, we feel the same a, way too. And we want to like build a community that all shares that same excitement and that mentality. Well, and it's important for us to like not be competitive here because we need to spread this word. Like yeah. agriculture makes up is the second largest producer of greenhouse gas in the world. And yep like we are in agriculture and it's our responsibility to change that. And, you know, regenerative farming is a giant tool that needs to be accessible and encouraged for everyone, you know? And, and with perennial farm, like when you're farming perennials, like vines or fruit trees, that's the easy one. You know, those are the easy ones to go organic like that. You're not like lettuce must be incredibly difficult on a large scale i imagine if you get you know what i mean like yeah i, I imagine annuals have a lot more tricky things that you have to really it's a lot more work whereas with perennials i mean i know the work is not small but 
like this is the one that this is the easy one guys like we should get this right and it's right also away. a really like, important one too because the of like we can do no till on these kind of places and it can be right. a carbon sink you know like right it builds on itself yeah yeah We're, yep yeah yeah no it's it, i totally agree and um I, I love that you're doing that and i i just wanted to say we loved your wines uh i think and we went back and forth so i, I was going to try to see if i could incite any competition but at the end it was like <laughs> what did it was we like, send we like, you uh so we a rosé from uh, yeah, was, lady of sunshine oh cool uh-huh and the Primitivo, and that, which was from my family the property. Primitivo, from right, from yeah. your family property. So that was really cool to taste your family's property. Um, and a, in a style that if anybody knows what a Primitivo was, you cannot think of it that way at all. Because it was, <laughs> that, that it was like 11.5. Um, by uh, by my time in Beaujolais. It was uh, 100% <laughs> carbonic Primitivo, which isn't your Oh, your wild. Typical. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and super like picked obviously super early, like eleven point five percent alcohol. It was just like bright red fruits and like that. Yeah, of course the, the sort of almost like red candy flavors yeah. that you get from carbonic and stuff. I didn't know carbonic, but if now it makes Not sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and then uh, your rosé, which is also interesting because it's Pinot mixed with Sauvignon Blanc, and you could really distinctively taste both even though like it you know it was like 70 percent pinot and yeah. 30 sauvignon blanc um really interesting and fun way to do a rosé i like i you know we're big into uh i don't know what do we call it sort of like breakfast alternative wine. rosés <laughs> i love that term too i just saw it on your website breakfast wines we we are constantly saying like wine for breakfast i love wine yeah. for breakfast like our wines are for breakfast like it pairs well with breakfast all breakfast exactly. um why do you guys use the term breakfast wine? Just because it's low alcohol, so you can sort of no. It's just, just like, like what you it. said. It's just like um, like for us, breakfast wine was all, is also like boat wine, which is also just like yeah. daytime wine. Well, I think it all started from like early mornings of fishing, and so Mikey would drag me out on the boat, you know, at six a.m. and nice. and then by like eight thirty, you're ready for like a glass. Like of I've wine. been doing this for a few hours now. This- <laughs> The sun's up. I'm eating a breakfast yeah. burrito. I could really go for a glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And the wines are like fresh, like not heavy wines, you know, wines that have this kind of weightlessness to them. And, yeah. and that's for us like breakfast wine. It doesn't have to be like a carbonic wine or anything like that, but it needs to be like a really pretty weightless, uh, definitely easily drinkable. Well, it's wine. the balance, it's yeah. the natural acidity that is the backbone of the wine and then you have all these other elements that come and help build the body whether it's you know alcohol alcohol or or time on lees um or you know slight oxidation from from barrel fermentation and aging um but it's all these things that kind of round it out to be it can be a low alcohol wine and also still carry with it you know layers of flavor um oh yeah 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 that are easy food wines too um but yeah, we yes. love breakfast wine. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't tell already. <laughs> you couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, start with breakfast and see where the day goes. Yeah. Um, Those are the best then... kind of Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Tuesdays. Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can really be any day. <laughs> we, uh, we also, so we all, you also sent the Chardonnay and Gamay uh, from Scar the Sea. Oh, cool. And yep. 
the gamay i think the gamay was sort of the the crowd favorite oh, uh, cool. I, you know, yeah yeah if there was a if there was a winner i would have to that's give, fun that's my nod. first gamay that i've nice produced. yeah well done and that came from the Topatero Vineyard, which we grafted in 2019. So it's also the first crop mm-hmm. of Gamut. Oh, wow. From a, a really cool vineyard, actually right next to the Bassey Vineyard. Um, in Avila Beach. In Avila Beach. So it's at a, less than a mile from the coast and it's farmed organic. And, and Ben and the Topatero and Bassey Vineyard are starting their first year of biodynamic um, conversion this year. So they'll be certified within the next few years. That's great. And I guess Very we didn't cool. touch on certification, but... Both Gina and I are are pretty big proponents of of certification in 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 vineyards um, as a way of just kind of avoiding greenwashing and just the terms that are too loosely thrown around. Um, yeah, I I mean, so absolutely. So well, let me put it this way: there was a question I was going to ask you. This is I wanted to ask you a difficult question, and yeah. and this is a good setup for it. So what happens if you guys? I mean, obviously, you you want to make wines low intervention where you're adding nothing besides minimal sulfites you obviously want to use something that's certified organic or better what happens if you number one run into an issue like a stuck fermentation or you start getting a real um, like hydrogen sulfide stinky issue in your wine uh, it becomes super reductive in a bad way like you're going to start developing mercaptans if you let it continue down that road and then that's number one. And number two, what if you know that a vineyard is not certified, but you know that, I don't know, it's in it's being farmed in a nice way. Um, and when I say a nice way, you know, you know that it's exclusively not being sprayed with any petrochemicals or anything that would disqualify it mm-hmm. from being certified, but it's not certified. Or further than that, what if it's just a neglected vineyard? Like what if it's like somebody let a conventional vineyard go for a couple of years and and you know there was no intention to it but it's basically been just watered by neglect uh for a couple of years what yeah. what do you do in those instances how do you where how do you react and what are you where's that's your, a great question your... adam because mikey's actually experienced this over the past few years with scar of the sea and the vineyards he works with he's yeah. he's done a really good job being a squeaky wheel and talking to farmers and pushing them to transition vineyards he works with towards yeah, in organics. 2020 was the first year that every vineyard I worked with was at the minimum practicing organic. Um, and this was also, and, you know, one of the stepping stones of our personal evolution towards wanting sure, yeah. to adapt this principle of only working with practicing organic or better vineyards. In, in 2019, no yeah. vineyard, I, 2018, 2019, no vineyard I worked with used any sort of herbicide. Um, but some of those vineyards were larger um old family traditional vineyards in Santa Maria that, you know, not overnight would switch to organics for me. Um, and that wasn't something I was, that I took lightly. I asked every time I paid more, um, and, and slowly I got them to convert or if they couldn't, I stopped working with them. And it's just talk. It's in my opinion, like, I think it's very important to be transparent about it. I would never call the wine all organic or anything like that if it wasn't. Um, and it was always my lowest price wine. My kind of buy the glass or entry level wine would be a combination of practicing organic or vineyards that were in transition to that. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I did it for a long time and it, it was, it takes a lot of energy to like be that squeaky wheel 
And, and I think it actually is really important um, to be the squeaky wheel and to try to convert these vineyards to farming better, because if, if no one does that, they won't. Um, If no one's asking, there's never going to be positive change. Yeah. So, and it's also them seeing that like, Oh, this isn't that hard to do. You know, a great example is Gina works with a vineyard called the Oliver's vineyard in, in Edna Valley. It's owned by the Tally family and Gina in 2018 started working with it and, asked you know it has to be farmed the the stuff i get needs to be farmed practicing organic and it was you know it was cool because they were already so close to it like they weren't using herbicides and they were using maybe a few they um, just had to switch fungicide their spray sprays program. that were not mm-hmm. organic and so they switched for gina in 2018 and then did it again in 2019 and and now in 2021 they're converting the whole vineyard and getting it certified because they they uh, realized that it wasn't actually more work they noticed they were close. Yeah. And, yeah. and then they also noticed that it was happening. It, it wasn't disastrous. It was actually exactly. beneficial for their vineyard. And then they also decided that, yeah, it was the, it was the next progressive step. So I, I guess the answer to your question is I think there should be some grace. It needs to be transparent and, and like it shouldn't be uh, advertised wrong. Um, but like the goal should be to get to organics. And so that was something also that I realized there was some vineyards that I thought I could get there. And I tried for a long time. We got off herbicides and then we were, you know, being, we were supposed to be farming organic. And then I just talked to the foreman and realized that I was being told one thing and it wasn't really happening. And so it was just like, okay. And also knowing when to pull the plug and like walk right. away from a situation. Um, yep. And, and that is, an, an important lesson too um and then like farming a vineyard like if a vineyard won't get certified like that's also their choice um like we work with our great friend alice um who farms a vineyard in los olivos um you've interviewed her recently I yeah think, adam young yeah, yeah. Ybarra Ybarra young. that vineyard yeah. is amazing and alice is farming that vineyard better than almost any vineyard I've seen in, in America um, and yep. like truly regenerative organic with the most intent, but it's not certified. Um, and so does that make it any less special? Like, I don't think so. Um, am I not going to work? Like I make a bar young Syrah and it's one of my favorite things I make. And like, I'm honored to make that wine. Um, yeah. But it might not be in Alice's budget right now or, or capacity to get certified. So like, we're not going to hold that against her, but yeah, she's pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess what, I think the best way to tell what someone's true intent is to see what they do themselves. And so like yeah. the vineyard that we're responsible for that we farm is certified biodynamic, right? And and so that's where the, our goal is. Um, but is do we force every vineyard we work with to do it? Like that's not, that's not really feasible. Um, no, but it's, you've given some really good examples that it's, you know, you almost have to show them that like there is there is business for them if they're willing to do this. And then if they show if they respond in kind, there's a give and take there. There's like you, you know, you're you're showing them, hey, you can do this. They're saying like, OK, great, I'm willing to try. You know, there's a reward for them. It's like it becomes a win win situation. And if they don't want to do that, then at a certain point, you can also show them 
there's a lose for you if you don't go this way because we're going to take our business elsewhere, you know? And it's not like you're trying to punish anybody, but like, that's just... No, we get to choose where we spend our money. That was another thing for us. And it was like... Let's invest in the farmers that we want to... Yeah. Like I was buying a a decent amount of grapes from Bienacito Vineyard in Santa Maria. And it, you know, I, I really liked that vineyard and it was being farmed the way I wanted, but... It was it was a, a larger operation than than I truly wanted, and and I I've rebrand I've redone my sourcing to where I don't buy grapes from vineyards that are owned like that. Um, I buy grapes yeah. from vineyards that are being farmed by our like Alice and by our friend Ben at Topatero and Mike Siner at Bassey, and I can put we choose to put our money where we want, and like it's a conscious yeah. choice. And so and also when someone buys our wine they're putting their money towards that person. Right. So it's it's an important step to like understand your sourcing and, you know, well, and the certification seal is like a stamp of authenticity. It doesn't mean, I mean, in the fact, in the example of these other vineyards that are farming, practicing organic, like that's the heart, the hard work is already being done. Whether they have a certification or not, doesn't mean that the land's not being farmed to a certain quality. Right. Right. Um, it's more right. about just like the proving you're doing it. And so it's just like, it's just in the, in this world where the words natural and organic and biodynamic are used very loosely because they're trendy. And there is this movement of people wanting to move towards greener ways of running their businesses and farming. And so these words can get overused without the weight behind it carried out in action. Um, yeah. So that's why we are advocates for certification yeah. because it's accountability, which leads to responsible action. And then right. I guess your final part of that question, the first part you asked, which was, um, yeah, in the winery. Like, yeah. If something what? goes wrong in the winery, um, you know, our goal is to not have that happen. Um, is, is, <laughs> yeah. is the first prevention is the best prevention medicine, of that right? would be the key aspect well and learning from your mistakes exactly and yeah. so you know in 2018 we had some stuck ferments that we um we basically built a tent we stirred the leaves every six hours i felt like um <laughs> and we did our best to get those wines to go dry naturally and there was a few barrels that wouldn't wouldn't um and got stuck and but when you make wines in the style we do you limit the amount of tools that you have available to you, right? And so what we yeah. learned through stuck fermentations was that we were using native yeast and it was a cool environment. And so what we really needed to push that fermentation through to completion was a warmer environment and getting those leaves into suspension. And so Mikey is now an incredible fort builder. Yeah. And, and we've built so many forts and we stick heaters in there. So we create like a hot room within the winery to get the yeast nice and active. And we stir the leaves to get the leaves and yeast in, up into suspension so they can do their jobs. And then um, as like a lesson learned and since 2018, so 2019 and 2020 and going forward, we actually ferment all of our white wines outside, like in the sun. Um, and so we like warm ferments. We like our wines to go dry quickly. And barrels are actually really great insulators. So like even as it gets hot during the day, like the temperature of the wine rises slowly and then you have the cooling of the night. And so your temperature fluctuates just a little bit. 
um, right. by the time the sun pops up again and, and now we're back into a warmer environment. And so having warm native fermentations has been the lesson learned that and, we've moved forward with. And then your, now, your people- other question, like a reduced wine, is something we definitely have dealt with. And and it's not something I want to deal with. Um, and there's natural ways of dealing with reduction. Um, and it's r- racking off the lees. So like the first step is like, what is causing the reduction? Is it the lees? Is it the yeast? What What's happening? And so the yeast might be struggling, so we might need to get it warmed up or it might be too warm. So you might need to cool it down. And so it's getting, doing a racking, getting the wine off the leaves, smelling the leaves and then saying, okay, it was the leaves or you smell the leaves and they smell great. And it's like, shit, it wasn't the leaves. And (laughs) let's let's say it's like uh, poor nutrients in the, in the grape. So you don't have high ends and and so the yeast are struggling with. Yeah. My experience with that is like, that's a pretty good reduction um, that okay. will sort itself out over time. So like depending, yeah, depending, you know, as an emergency thing, like if it is reduced to a point where we took it to a lab and like, it's, this is a dangerous situation. I've used, we've used copper pipes where we've like put a copper pipe in a barrel. Like okay. we hung, we basically use fishing line and like, um, string up like a wind chime of copper pipes and i'll put that in the barrel yeah um yep. that's not like a I've, regular... ra- I've racked through copper pipes before what's that Ra- i've racked through copper exactly. pipes. like that's the same idea yeah. like if you went to france and, and noticed a, a certain thing like they have a, a racking on a copper pipe or a splash plate that's a copper splash pit plate um i've really only done that like once most of the time with any sort of reduction it will go away with the racking um, or adding or, or healthy leaves, adding leaves to the wine. Yeah, I've had my Sauvignon Blanc from last right. year went reduced during fermentation, and I had been consolidating a Chardonnay lot that was dry. And from the empty barrels, I collected the leaves and distributed throughout. And it, like we talked about earlier, it kind of ended up fining out the reduction and helped helped it get out of the reduced state. Um, and and then yeah. honestly, like the, the magic of the leaves. final and last resort that I've ever had to deal with is um is actually just selling the wine to someone else. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that th- those are some examples of when some wines have gone not where we wanted, that we either learned lessons or or tried to use the most natural approach to winemaking. I love that. You know, I was thinking back to the the packaging thing, and I think I think the like the the goal that we are all shooting for is sort of like a wine aqueduct. So just eliminate all packaging and we just have a big corridor of wine flowing through California and we just there's it comes out in the tap. Yeah, that that's would be what epic. Adam, <laughs> you just solved all the world's problems. <laughs> I know. It's like I wish I liked kegs better. Um I have a problem with like I just don't know. It's always like there's everything's gray, right? Like there's no easy answers to anything. And like, so like, right, right. I've kegged some ciders before and I like the idea of it cause it's not using glass and it's potentially a lower input, but then these kegs are plastic and, yep. um, yep. and they don't recycled very well. And then I just hate plastic. So I'm just like, yep. I don't know what the answer is here. Um, yeah. And what about like, beer keg style yeah that's cool it's logistically so challenging because those kegs are so expensive and the rental programs are really complicated and expensive and 
it it would almost only work if you could just handle it right out like if your front of your winery was a tap room yeah it could work for your own place or if you had like three bars that you were like these are the kegs and they got brought back to you right but that just doesn't exist um at least yet yeah (laughs) yeah no that's true well and it's also just i I guess for me like i like drinking wine at my house and i yeah i i you know i want to open a bottle of wine and drink that wine and i don't know you know so it's like it's it's also a behavioral thing like you're talking about something that's like a totally different um approach approach to wine than we currently do yeah and and everything is complicated like so now there are plastic wine bottles Mm. being introduced on the market and you know how do you feel about those i mean i know you hate plastic as i do too but like let's say like where you know I imagine we could we could probably find a study that would show that the carbon footprint reduction would be so great that any of the you know sort of negative side of production of plastic would be offset by that you know by shipping plastic bottles around the country uh, at you know a, a fraction of the weight of a glass bottle. Yeah, how do you, how do I mean, know? I think that's a great question. I hate plastic so much that it, I have yeah. like a instinctively not interested in <laughs> it's that. a revulsion yeah, yeah. like just yeah. like because of the ocean and the plastics out there it's yeah like, disgust me yeah um canned wine is always an option yeah you know gina does do a canned wine with um some friends of uh, ryan sturm companion? and the companion mm-hmm. guys and okay i think that's a really cool pack- packaging um yeah it's a different option but yeah. yeah it's just like you said they're they're just not the easiest of answers um yeah i well i like what you guys are doing which is you know what i think the some of the best that you can do that can be done right now before we come up with better answers and i it sounds like you guys are on that path anyway so if there is a better answer you'll probably adopt it as well, well yeah i mean that's just part of evolving right like as we yeah. learn like and 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 of all our approaches like we're tr- constantly trying to get better and that's why we visit certain people and that's why we talk to as many people as we can just so we can continue to learn and and make progress you know this year we we went to the monarch tractor demo which oh, yeah. is an electric um self-driving tractor and solar powered too yeah, right solar like powered solar. has a weather station on it it's a robot it literally will um copy all your movements to the cloud and then mimic them on the next pass um wow. and and like the potential there is insane and so, like, really interested in, in in the day that we can do that. Um, I think, yeah. like, the elimination of diesel on the farm is is really interesting and inspiring. Um, Love that. And yeah. Well, you guys, what is what is your the best way for people to learn more and get in touch, find out, buy your wine? I mean, I think the what easiest way is through our Instagram. In truth, like, as far and our as websites. like. Yeah. yeah, maybe not buying wine, but if people want to see what we're doing or send us a message, like Instagram is the easiest way mm-hmm. to actually get a hold of us um, or like to keep what, tabs on how we're farming or what we're doing in the winery. Um, what are your What are your Instagrams? It's uh, mine is Scar of the Sea, but in between each word is an underscore. Okay. Mine's Lady of the Sunshine, and I think I have periods in between each, each word. word. Yeah. I'd have to check. Okay. <laughs> and then purchasing our wine, um, 
you know, it's either going to our website or going to your local shop and seeing if they have our wines and if they don't have them, asking them um, if they have them or if they could get them um, is like kind of how we operate. You know, we want we want the small winery, small wine shops to be able to sell our wines. And, and if that's not the case, then they can always go on our website and we can ship the wines to them. I love it. Yeah, and the it's Scar of the Sea Wines and Lady of the Sunshine Wines dot com. Exactly. Got it. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. This has been I mean, it, like I said, it's just a joy to know you and know that you're out there doing that and know that your wines are close and local and and I can get some great cider here from <laughs> um I'm just excited. I'm just actually looking at your shopping page on at the six pack of cider and you may be getting an order from me. Thank you. Is there any, is there anything you guys wanted to end with any, any final thing that we didn't talk about? I think we covered a lot it, of ground. Yeah. No, yeah. Just, yes, we did. No, thank you, Adam. Oh, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll um, I'm sure run into each other soon. Yes. I hopefully so. next time it'll be over a bottle of wine or two in your garden. In LA, yes, yeah, we want to come see your garden. We're very jealous. Or if you want to come up to to Shen or the winery or Bassey and check out the vineyards, you're always. Welcome. I definitely do. I definitely do. It's the hopefully I'll get up there before uh, it's time for me to like start dealing with harvest again. <laughs> or maybe we can carpool to Lopez on the next. Oh, that might be nice. That might be really nice. Yeah, lots of options. I love that. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were inspired, got some great ideas, and also discovered some new great California wines and ciders to try. And speaking of trying new wines, if you'd like to try our wines, that's Centralis Wines, we are now hosting tastings by appointment at our house in South Los Angeles. You can see how we've converted a small Los Angeles yard into a biodiverse, regenerative, organic, permaculture food and wine garden meet our chickens, pick our brains about gardening and winemaking, and taste Centralis wines outside under the Pinot Noir vines that grow up over our pergola. Just email info at centraliswine.com to set an appointment. Tastings are $25 per person, but we waive the fee if you buy a couple bottles or more. That's info at c-e-n-t-r-a-l-a-s wine.com. We'd love to see you.